Well, good morning. I want to start out today with a brief exercise. I want to ask you a question. I want you to contemplate it for a few seconds in your mind before we continue this morning. Here's the question. Are you ready? Who is the wisest person you have ever known? Who is the wisest person that you have known personally that you've been able to observe and see how they make decisions and navigate life? Well, whoever that person is that comes to mind, I would be willing to bet that you hold that person in very high regard. Because the reality is there is just something impressive and captivating about wise people. Wise people When it comes to navigating life, they just seem to be operating on a higher plane. We're all playing checkers, and people that possess wisdom are playing chess. And more times than not, when it comes to wise people, if you've ever had the chance to watch someone up close who's wise, more times than not, somehow or another, they end up finding a way to control or influence outcomes. One of the wisest people I have ever known was a young restaurateur by the name of Steve Taylor. When Steve Taylor was about 30 years old, he opened his very first restaurant right beside the University of South Carolina, and it went absolutely gangbusters. Within a few months of opening up this restaurant, Steve recruited me, and I became his very first manager when I was about the age of 20. And so naturally, as you might imagine, I admired Steve. I looked up to Steve Taylor. I mean, for one thing, Steve is six feet, eight inches tall. I'm not quite six eight, so I would literally (laughs) look up to Steve Taylor, but There was just something about this guy that was 10 years my senior that knew how to navigate whatever life threw at him, and he did it in such an amazing way that you just can't help but admire people like that. Wise people just sort of have a knack for successfully navigating all of life's little annoyances and obstacles and problems, and they do so in a really remarkable way. You know, if we were opening a new restaurant and Steve didn't really trust the general contractor to get the store open in time, Steve would give the general contractor a dummy date. So he would give the general contractor just a made-up date. It was usually four or six weeks earlier than we were actually planning on opening. So the general contractor would be working off of this dummy date. It was a lie, let me acknowledge it, but he gave him a fake date. And what that did is when that general contractor inevitably went over schedule, we had some runway, we had some margin, we had a little bit of flexibility to still open that store on time. If Steve wanted to grow our catering sales, he would simply find new ways to incentivize existing catering customers. Most of our catering customers at that time were pharmaceutical reps. Their drug companies would often buy lunches for doctor's offices, but the pharmaceutical reps were actually the ones choosing the restaurant that would cater the lunch. And Steve realized pretty early on, hey, if we give 10% of the catering bill back in gift certificates to these pharmaceutical reps, they're gonna be incentivized to order from us more frequently because they know, hey, every time we get a catering from our restaurant, I'm getting 10% in gift certificates and our family can go out to eat later on that week. 
If we were dealing with a landlord that was repeatedly ignoring our phone calls or emails to address, let's say, a roof leak, no problem. Steve would simply send a letter, certified mail, and this forced the landlord to have to sign when he received it, which made it to where we could prove he was getting our communication, and in no time, you would have that roof leak fixed. Well, this morning, as we continue our study through the book of Colossians, we're going to see how we, too, can grow in wisdom. Not the kind of wisdom that's going to maximize our profits, or not the kind of wisdom that's going to light a fire under a negligent landlord. No, we're going to be exploring the kind of wisdom today that will help us more effectively introduce our neighbor to Christ. So this morning, I want to invite you, if you haven't done so already, to turn to Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, and there we will seek to become more like Christ, the one who walked in wisdom toward outsiders. Colossians 4, verse 5, says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Just so you know, Outsiders here would refer to unbelievers, non-Christians. So we're being told to be wise in the way we act toward non-Christians and to make the most of every opportunity. Here the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, and he's also writing to us today, 2,000 years later, and he's telling us that we are to live our lives in such a way that we walk in wisdom towards non-Christians. We know this because just a few verses earlier, the Apostle Paul himself has just requested that the Christians in Colossae pray for him so that Paul might have opportunities to share the gospel, and so Paul might also have wisdom to know what he should say and what he shouldn't say when those opportunities presented themselves. And right after asking for that church in Colossae to pray for him, Paul immediately pivots to our passage today, where we pick up in verse 5, where he commands the Christians in Colossae, and this is also a command for us Christians in the Capital District, to live our lives so strategically, so thoughtfully, so wisely that the maximum number of people possible might be saved. Well, what are some practical ways we can walk, we can walk in wisdom toward outsiders? Well, for one, we can be generous with our time. I don't know about you, but when I get exhausted, I crave solitude. When I am really spent, when I'm really tired, I want to get off alone for just a few hours to recharge my batteries. I crave it. I need it. I desire it. Being in ministry, you deal with people on a regular basis. You're oftentimes in many meetings. And just being in ministry and then the season of life that I'm in with my amazing wife and three amazing daughters, many of whom are extroverted, and just all the normal social obligations we all have, sometimes that kind of piles up and I get to this point of social exhaustion, and I desperately want to get some solitude to recharge my batteries. Have you ever been there just looking to get some downtime, to get a little bit of quiet, to just re-energize those batteries? Well, this happened to me just a few weeks ago. I had one of those days, perhaps you can relate, where my day was made up of meeting after meeting 
after meeting, after meeting. You know, you look at your calendar and you think, when am I even gonna go to the bathroom? There are so many meetings stacked on top of each other. And hey, well, maybe you'll get a break at the lunch hour. No, your lunch hour is a working meeting. This is definitely something Satan has invented, the working <laughs> meeting. That's when you work through your lunch hour and watch your fellow staff eat their food. It's a real pleasure. You're in meetings all day, you have the working meeting, then you've got three, four, five more meetings after that, and then somewhere around five or six, you know, maybe you're finally heading home, but you're not off yet, right? Because when you were in those meetings, you were getting texts, you were getting phone calls, you were missing voicemails, and so you're returning all those texts and voicemails and missed calls, and then finally, hallelujah, you pull into your driveway, and you're finally able to let your hair down and relax. And then that chatty neighbor just seems to walk over to your driveway and you have a decision to make. You know, as much as it doesn't feel like it in that moment, when that neighbor comes over or your coworker or whoever it may be in your life, as much as it may not feel like it, that is an opportunity. Doesn't feel like an opportunity feels like an inconvenience. Perhaps it feels like an intrusion. Maybe you start feeling like I'm out of control of my calendar. I can't meet right now. I have A, B, and C to get done this evening. It doesn't feel like an opportunity, but according to scripture, that is an opportunity. And the reality is when it comes to life, we never really get to pick when opportunities pop up in our lives, but we always get to pick how we respond to those opportunities. And if we are going to be a church that walks in wisdom towards outsiders, I would suggest to you that one practical thing we can do is to be generous with our time, to seek to drop everything as much as you can and give your attention to that non-Christian friend, neighbor, family member, or whoever it might be in your life. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, the Apostle Paul is writing to the young pastor, Timothy, and he tells Timothy in verse 2, Timothy, here's what I want you to be busy with. You need to be preaching the word of God. No surprise there. But then he says, be prepared whether the time is favorable or not favorable. Your translation might say, preach the word and be ready in season and out of season. And while these instructions were given to a pastor, to a minister, they certainly apply to all of us as well if we're honestly serious about seeing the mission of God advance in the world. If we want to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, we need to be generous with our time, both when it's convenient and when we have a lot of white space, but also when it's less convenient and we'd rather not to. Walking in wisdom is going to entail generosity of our time and attention. Hey, here's another way that we can walk in wisdom toward outsiders. We can be practical and proactive in helping others. We can be practical and proactive in helping others. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus says to his disciples, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, okay? 
Jesus tells his disciples, live your life in such a way, let your light shine in such a way that non-believers glorify God. The hope is that they will come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Live your life in that way by doing good works. Now, when you hear that phrase, good works, what probably comes to mind for you is thing, doing things that are morally good and upright. Jesus wants us to do good works. If we do enough good works, that tends to set the conditions for people to want to glorify God. And it's certainly true that this word here does mean morally good. Jesus commands us to do that which is morally good. But this Greek word for good also has kind of baked into the meaning, not only things that are morally upright, but things that are, get this, attractive. Things that are beautiful, things that are handsome, things that are useful. And it makes me ask myself the question, are my good deeds attractive to the non-Christians that I have the opportunity to interact with? Are my deeds useful and practical. This word carries with it the idea of doing deeds that are morally good, attractive, and useful. They actually accomplish something. Those are maybe things like shoveling a neighbor's driveway or offering to babysit if that's appropriate. Maybe your neighbor or coworker has some upcoming surgery and you prepare a meal for them. Well, one of the ways that we can help outsiders warm up to the things of God is by practicing good deeds that are, yes, morally good, but also useful, practical, and attractive. Now, I believe for most Christ followers, pretty much all of us are willing to say yes if a non-Christian neighbor or coworker or relative asks us for something but I wanna challenge us this morning to go a step further and not only be willing to say yes when an opportunity is thrust upon us and that neighbor, that coworker, that family member is asking us for help with something, I wanna challenge us to be proactive about looking for those opportunities because the reality is most of our neighbors, most of our coworkers would probably not feel comfortable enough to ask for help in many different areas of life, but those same neighbors and coworkers oftentimes are willing to accept some help, accept a good deed if we are the ones initiating that. One of the phrases that I attempt to live my life by is the phrase, act, never react. I love that phrase, act, never react. Don't simply reflexively and responding in your life, just respond to whatever comes your way. No plan, strategize, be proactive in seeking certain outcomes. And I believe a very practical way that we can help walk in wisdom toward outsiders is by being practical in the kinds of good deeds we do and also being proactive and looking for those opportunities, asking if our neighbor, our coworker would be open to that and then following through on it. Boy, that is a way to help warm hearts and catch some people's attention and warm them to the things of God. A third way I would suggest this morning that we can walk in wisdom toward outsiders is by this, practicing discretion with our political views. Practicing discretion with our political views. 
Now, hear me this morning. I'm not saying don't have political views. I'm not saying don't passionately hold to political views. I'm not saying be uninvolved in the process of electing officials. No, we should be involved in that. But I am cautioning against people that wear their politics on their sleeve. And I'm urging you to consider practicing some discretion when it comes to your political views. I want to introduce you to someone this morning, someone by the name of Lucy. Lucy is our family dog. We've had Lucy for about 11 years now. And Lucy, according to my daughters, is an icon. I don't really know what that means, but they tell me Lucy is an icon in our home. Our dog is absolutely beloved by all of us. And it doesn't matter if I was living in Florida or South Carolina or near Charlotte or now in the Capital District. Since I've had Lucy, I have loved to walk Lucy around my neighborhood. We've probably walked hundreds, if not thousands of miles since we've had her. And right now, I love walking Lucy in the area where I live, and that is in the Menans area. But here's the thing. If you just look on my block, there is a wide array of political views represented just on our block. These are actual photos that I took. Hopefully, you'll be able to see these on the screen. This is a house that I walk by with regularity. My dog and I walk past this house. Our, our family knows the neighbors that live there. They're fine, wonderful people in many different ways, and we often interact with them. But as you can see, their political convictions and their ideological convictions are so strong that they have literally kind of planted a flag and put a yard sign in their property expressing a political, ideological, worldview position that means a heck of a lot to them. They care enough about it that they put it in their yard. Well, our passage is telling us this morning we need to be people that make the most, not of some or a few opportunities, but of every opportunity. Hey, I don't know about you, but I want to have a chance if God opens a door to point these people that live in this home towards Christ. I'll show you another neighbor, same block where we live. Please don't stalk us and find where we live. That would be a problem. <laughs> but I want to show you another house. This is also on our block where we live in Menans. I don't know if you can tell from the image, but there, there's a Trump 2024 flag and an American flag. Seems to signal a different set of concerns, political affiliation, and the rest. Again, by the way, the people that live in this house, they're wonderful people. They're fine people. We love interacting with them in our neighborhood. And I don't know about you, but for me, I want to be in a position where I can make the most, it doesn't say of some, or a handful, or even most opportunities, I want to be in a position where I can make the most of every opportunity. And I believe it's strategic and wise to practice some discretion with our political views if we want to be in a position to make the most of every opportunity. But you may be saying to yourself, Matt, this isn't a problem for me. I don't live in Manan, so I'm going to keep carrying on with whatever I want to do. I'm going to put another image up here on the screen that represents the 2020 presidential election in four local counties here and how the voting breakdown went according to the sources I could find. And I just want to ask you to take a few seconds and let your eyes kind of roll over those numbers. 
Grace Fellowship, those are thousands, no, hundreds of thousands, really, of souls that will spend an eternity in heaven or in hell. And we work with these people. We live beside these people. They're in our neighborhoods. They're in our families. They're probably going to be around the Thanksgiving table. And we don't have alignment with every single person politically. I wonder how many of us are really willing to live in a wise way in order to make the most of every opportunity. Because just the way I see it, speaking for me here, if we wear our political views on our sleeve, if we telegraph them everywhere we go, if we send that us and them messaging, and that's unfortunately what political beliefs do in this day, if we live that way, I see no way that we can make the most of every opportunity. I see that we can maybe make the most of 40 or 60% of the opportunities depending on where you fall with your politics. Scripture tells us this is not a best practice nor a suggestion. It's an imperative. It's a command. Make the most of every opportunity. And I believe a strategic, wise way to practically do that is by practicing discretion with your political views. The Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, sending his disciples out into the world, says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and be innocent as doves. We are to be innocent. We are to be truth tellers. We are to not be dishonest to keep the peace or something like that. We're to be innocent, but we're also equally commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to be as shrewd and wise as serpents. Now, folks, I want to ask you a question. What do snakes do when they enter a new environment? Do they draw attention to themselves? Do they wave their non-existent snake arms around and bang pots and pans together? No, they don't announce their presence at all. Snakes blend in. Snakes keep a low profile. They scope things out, and then having done that, they make calculated, strategic moves based upon the environment in which they find themselves. Now, maybe this morning you're thinking, why are people so thin-skinned? Why is it that I have to hide my politics because everyone has such this snowflake, you know, composition that they can't handle a different sort of viewpoint politically? Well, maybe we shouldn't be that way, but the reality is we are, folks. I believe politics are now more divisive than religion. I think you're more likely to see people marry across religious lines than political lines. And when we trumpet our political views, much of the time we're going to be erecting blockades and hurdles and training people to tune us out, to not listen to us, because we are not like them. Christ's followers are commanded, so much as we can, to not needlessly offend people. If truth offends, so be it. If the gospel offends, so be it. We are not to needlessly or carelessly offend others' sensibilities. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 32. 
Paul writing to the church at Corinth, and this applies to us. Again, this is not a best practice or a suggestion. This is a command in sacred scripture. He says, give no offense to the Jews, give no offense to the Gentiles, and give no offense to the church of God. In other words, in how we live our lives, we are to do everything possible, so much as it depends on us, to not needlessly offend the church, that is, our brothers and sisters in Christ, but he also says we are to do everything in our power to not offend Jews and Gentiles. If you don't really know what that means, basically, when you're reading through the Bible, all of humanity is divided into two buckets. There's Jews and Gentiles. Jews are the physical descendants of Abraham through Isaac. Gentiles, that's everybody else. And Paul tells the church in Corinth, make sure you do not offend Jews nor Gentiles. In the first century, when Paul wrote this, you could not find two groups more dissimilar than the Jews and the Gentiles. How they dressed, the languages that they spoke, what they valued and prized, what they ate, how they lived their lives, all of it was different depending on if you were a Jew or a Gentile, and yet the Apostle Paul tells us, do everything we can to not offend the Jews or the Gentiles. I believe if 1 Corinthians was written in our day, it might say something like, do not needlessly offend Democrats or Republicans. Again, if the truth offends, the truth offends, but we're told, do not offend the church of God, do not offend Jews, and do not offend Gentiles. I'll say it once more. I believe a way we can walk in wisdom toward outsiders is by practicing discretion when it comes to our political views. I have lived in a red state. I have lived in a swing state. I now live in a blue state. This council has served me well anywhere I have lived. Let's pick back up in Colossians chapter four in verse six. Colossians chapter four, verse six, there we're told to let our conversation be always full of grace. Let our conversation be always full of grace. You say, what kind of conversations? Well, the word here for conversation is the most generic term possible for speech. What the Apostle Paul is saying in all of our interactions with non-Christians uh, that is a casual conversation around the water cooler. Uh, that is sharing the gospel with someone over lunch. That's texts, that's emails, that's social media posts. In all of our interactions, in all of our conversations with non-believers, it is to be engaged in with grace. Our conversation is to always be full of grace. If we want to walk in wisdom toward outsiders the way Christ did, the ultimate soul winner, then we need to learn how our speech can grow in being full of grace. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, there we are told as Christ followers, we are to speak the truth. We're not going to tell lies. We're not going to say black is white and white is black and up is down and down is up. We're not going to be dishonest. We're going to speak the truth. But here's the bedside manner. We're gonna speak the truth in love. And that passage says, as we speak the truth in love, do you know who we become more like? As we grow in speaking the truth in love, we grow in every way more and more 
to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke with love, with tact, with patience when he dealt with outsiders. Oh, I'm well aware that there are times when Jesus would turn the tables over, and I know that Jesus called Herod a fox, and hey, I'm aware that he blasted the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Jesus wasn't Mr. Rogers, I get that. But those blunt, no punches pulled conversations are the exception to how Jesus interacted with those outside, not the rule of thumb. First Peter 3, verse 15, speaking about how we interact with non-believers, it says we should, in our hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be ready to give an answer when that unbelieving neighbor, coworker, family member engages and has conversations around the things of God. Boy, be prepared, be ready. Be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But catch this, but do this with gentleness and respect. Answer outsiders with gentleness and respect. We are commanded to speak the truth in love, and if we want to be like Christ, who is the ultimate example of how to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, we've gotta learn how to let our speech be full of grace. Finally, in verse six, After we're told to let our conversation be always full of grace, we're told that our conversation should also be seasoned with salt so that we will know how to answer everyone. Hey, I have a question for you this morning. I hope you'll raise your hand or interact in the chat if you're joining us online. It's been my observation that there's basically two kinds of snackers in the world. There's the people that love the sweet snacks, and there's people that love salty snacks. So confession is good for the soul. Let's see a show of hands. How many of you love sweet snacks? Let's see a show of hands. Right, so this is, we're going for the ice cream, we're going for the cake, we're going for the apple cider donuts. All right, now, let's have the people that are correct raise their hand now. How many people here prefer salty snacks? All right, God bless you. There is a wrong answer to this, and I'm sorry, sweet snack people, you were wrong. I love salty snacks. I love salty snacks. This is no joke. I have literally purchased cocktail peanuts that were salted and scooped them out and salted them with a salt shaker because they weren't salty enough. You've noticed this. They're trying to gussy up these nutritional labels and they're pulling out all that delicious salt. And now I'm having to use my own salt. It's a real travesty. But you know, the thing about salt is it's very much a matter of personal taste and preference, is it not? The amount of salt you want on your food is gonna look different than the amount of salt I want on my food. I mean, after all, that's why restaurants put salt and pepper shakers out on the table at restaurants because everybody's palate's a little different. Their particular taste and how they want it is gonna vary from individual to individual. It has this customization kind of quality to it. And in our passage, in Colossians chapter four, verse six, we are told in our interactions with non-believers, our conversations should be seasoned with salt. In contrast to a one-size-fits-all 
cookie cutter kind of answer. We should be the kind of people that are growing in wisdom and learning how to give custom, individualized answers to our unbelieving neighbors. They should be tailored and customized on a case-by-case basis. In other words, we're to include certain conversational ingredients and also exclude certain conversational ingredients based upon that individual and that unique interaction that God has given you the opportunity to represent him in. Now, I don't wanna be misunderstood this morning. If, if you're someone that's sharing the gospel, God bless you in any way that you're doing that. Far too many of us are not sharing the good news of Jesus with our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, and our friends. I don't wanna discourage sharing the gospel But as God may use and has used gospel tracts and memorized gospel presentations, and my suspicion is he'll always use those because ultimately the power is in the word of God, as helpful as those can be, it's even better if we grow in being led by the Holy Spirit and grow in wisdom and learning how to give a customized answer based upon that unique point in time and that particular conversation. If you've ever read through the Gospels, it's clear that Jesus never uses the same method twice when it comes to sharing the good news about God. It's different all the time. Jesus uses a million different approaches based upon what is wisest and most strategic and in light of the sensibilities of that particular hearer. There are times when Jesus is bold and confrontational and kind of grabs people by the shoulders and he pulls no punches in his speech. But there are also times in the Gospels where Jesus downplays differences and even obscures truth at times. Think about the parables. He speaks in parables so that outsiders who are insincere do not receive more revelation, and those who are sincere and seek to find the meaning, Jesus reveals it to them. So sometimes Jesus is bold and direct, other times he's extremely tactful and gentle and downplays differences. There are times when Jesus is asked a question, he gives a straightforward, simple answer. There's still other times where he doesn't answer the question whatsoever. There's times when Jesus is asked a question and his answer is a question. He answers the question with the question. Jesus does all sorts of different things when he was interacting with outsiders in the Gospels. But one thing's for sure, he never used the same approach twice. Really seems that walking in wisdom, Jesus would customize his conversation in light of things like how sincere the seeker was. Uh, What level of understanding does the seeker have and how might I answer them in a way that's actually graspable and digestible? Jesus would also answer questions in light of what might needlessly offend the sensibilities of the hearer. Look at the woman at the well in John chapter four and look at how gracious and tactful he is. The bottom line, folks, is Jesus uses all these different ways to answer people. He's seasoning each conversation with salt. He's giving a custom, unique answer to each person as is fitting. 
Well, Jesus possessed greater wisdom than I or you will ever have. I mean, that's just the fact of the matter. But the reality is all of us can grow in learning how to talk to outsiders with wisdom, tact, and grace. And I want to let you know that coming up on Saturday, November the 13th, Jesse Renault and I are going to be hosting a seminar here at Latham. And that seminar is entitled Removing the Awkwardness from Evangelism. We want to give you some practical tools in your tool belt and general wisdom so that you can grow more confident and comfortable in talking to outsiders and sharing your faith in a more meaningful and impactful way. I hope you'll sign up. We would love to have you. But bottom line today, Grace Fellowship, when we look at the culture around us and when we look at the state of the world, I don't care where you are politically, I think all of us find much to lament. If we actually want to have the impact of being light and being salt, if we actually want to make, want to make a difference that is meaningful, if we actually want to set the conditions for outsiders to go from being dead in their sins and trespasses, forgiven of that and reconciled to God, possessing eternal life, and the hope of the resurrection of the righteous, if we really desire that, then we should take these two short verses seriously and grow in wisdom in the way we act toward outsiders. Let's be people that make the most of every opportunity, that grow in learning that skill and art of salting conversations just so in light of that particular conversation and hearer, and let's seek to see as many men and women as possible in the capital region come to a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I find this passage challenging. It's challenging because it's countercultural. It's challenging for me because it runs contrary to my own nature and disposition, which can be blunt at times. God, you know I have strong political views. I'm busy. It's difficult to make time for others. And self-expression and just being unfiltered is how we want to live our lives. But God, thank you for showing us a better way. And thank you for your patience with us. God, would you just please move and all the people that are here today, anyone that has ears to hear, Lord, help us know how we might apply this to our lives to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. God, will you please make each and every one of us a soul winner that grows in wisdom, that is led by the Holy Spirit, that erects no needless obstacles and boldly proclaims the truth in wisdom so that as many people as possible might not die in their sins, but possess eternal life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.